Hi there, everyone. Welcome to today's um, webinar. Um, my name is Sarah O'Leary from MIOSH. The webinar today is Understanding the Drivers of Incident Underreporting. It is being presented by Anthony Gibbs, who is the CEO of Centus. Centus works with clients who have hit a plateau in their safety results or who are looking to achieve the next level of safety excellence. With more than 15 years of research into workplace safety and psychology, Centus fosters safer, healthier environments mentally responsible and efficient workplaces and practices. Um, as CEO, Anthony is responsible for leading centres on its mission to change the lives of individuals and organisations for the better every day. Uh, now, before I hand straight over to Anthony, I just want to mention again, there is a Q&A panel. Please use that for questions during the presentation and we'll endeavour to answer most of those at the end. We're also going to have a, a couple of polls, which will be interesting if you can join into those and we will record the webinar and send the slides, the recording, the podcast after the event. Um, if you need to address me directly for any reason, use the chat panel. And um, I think that's everything I need to tell you. Um, so over to you, Anthony, and thank you for joining us again, uh, once again. We Thanks, really Sarah. appreciate that. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you everyone for, uh, for joining us. So today's topic we're going to look at covering is how to address incident underreporting within your organisation for improved safety outcomes. So the, the insights and data we will provide today will come from uh, about 12,460 workers across nine different industries that we've serviced using our climate surveys over the last little period. As Sarah mentioned earlier, Sendus is an individual with the mission of changing the lives of individuals and organisations for the better every day. Uh, we do that through the application of psychology and neuroscience to improve leadership capability and organisational alignment to your safety objectives. I've been working, I've had the pleasure of working with Centres now for going on 14 years. Um, and so I've been here for a big chunk of the journey. Um, so it's been a, been a great ride and been great to see so many lives and organisations changed. To launch into the subject for today, we're going to cover off the, uh, the project or the um, presentation today in four stages. We're gonna look first of all at an overview of why we're exploring this idea of incident underreporting. We'll provide you the current insights that we've found from our data, and then we'll move into more of an action oriented part of the webinar where we're gonna look at where do we start addressing underreporting and how do we create a culture of reporting. To kick off, I guess, the, the conversation around the value or the importance of looking at underreporting within your organisation, we're going to look at a recent incident occurred, that occurred back in 2018. So this, uh, some of you may remember newspaper reports about this particular uh, instance, but I'll give you a quick summary of what played out for those who aren't familiar. So. At 6.20 in the morning on, on October 29, 2018, a Lion Air flight, JT610, took off from the International Airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. 12 minutes after taking off from Jakarta, the plane, a three-month-old Boeing 737 MAX 8, plunged into the Java Sea, killing all 189 people on board. Five months later, a second 737 MAX 8 crashes killing 157 people in Ethiopia. So how could it be that two of the same planes would crash over such a short period of time? 
So what happened that meant that these, these crashed and they killed a total of 346 people? Well, to understand this a little bit more and to understand whether this, this crash or these crashes could have been prevented, we're gonna go back in time uh, to just the day before um, the first crash occurred. So that's the 28th of October. On that particular day, a Lion Air crew fought to control, fought to gain control of a Boeing, this, a Boeing 737 MAX 8, the same one which would crash the following day. They got help, however, from an unexpected source, an off-duty pilot who happened to be riding in the cockpit. That extra pilot who was seated in the cockpit uh, and in the jump seat was able to correctly diagnose a problem and told the crew to disable the malfunctioning flight control system and then they saved the plane. Um, remarkably, that plane wasn't taken out of service. And the next day, under the control of a different crew, the same jetliner crashed into the, into the Java Sea, killing the 189 that we spoke about before. Investigators have indicated that it was the identical malfunction that was experienced the previous day and the same one that would go on to cause the crash five months later on. So what was happening is the same faulty MCIS uh, engaged because it could be activated by a single sensor reading. And in both crashes, the sensors are suspected to have failed, sending incorrect data to the flight computer. Um, and, with, and without a redundant check in place, it triggered the automated system. Investigations are still taking place, but Boeing, the pilots, the airlines have all been criticised heavily for their actions, or in many cases, lack of action in reporting and addressing the factors leading to these horrendous crashes. The crashes were in fact completely avoidable. And had the faulty systems been addressed when the first warning signs were identified, the investigation, uh, sorry, the, if, if they'd been addressed when they were first identified, none of those crashes would have occurred. So there's uh, ongoing investigations, of course, into the specifics of, of why these incidents played out. So have a think about your business for a moment, a bit of a, bit of a self-reflection moment. What happens when someone reports something we don't want to hear within our organisation? What happens when um, someone reports something that could impact on production or performance or, or abilities to hit KPIs or deadlines in your organisation? It's amazing to think uh, that, sure, that you, know, you look at an incident like this and you think surely um, someone would have reported such a significant uh, near miss within that organisation. But what our data is suggesting is that every day incidents are going un underreported. So I'm gonna ask people to put some notes in the chat if you wouldn't mind. I've got a question here. So what is the risk when people fail to report? So what, 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 are, we, what are we putting at risk when people fail to report? I'd be curious to see uh, what, what the people online come up with. We don't learn, absolutely. So if you don't report, you can't learn. Uh, further incidents, 100%. Opportunities to learn. Repeat incidents. Lives, yeah, we lose lives. Same incident event happens to others. Yeah, and might, in, might be in different parts of the organisation. We lose the opportunity to improve. So we're, we're talking here about typical types of opportunities that we have within a learning type of organisation, an organisation that looks at error management type of um, opportunities. 
So we've got some other great opportunities in here. Governance does not see it, therefore cannot support change. Um, and, and uh, yeah, the end imp implication can be reputation and goodwill. Yep, Swiss cheese effect. Uh, and we risk people. So absolutely, it seems like the, the audience online here is a really great grip on the challenges we face when we don't get the reporting culture right. Some of the, sum some of the summary, I guess a summary of what we find are the challenges to be by not reporting uh, is that you don't have the ability to see trends and themes and address issues proactively. So often some of those weak signals as they often call them uh, will come through and if we're getting that data, we can look at the trend or the potential implications of those and, and put proactive measures into place. As many of you have mentioned, we don't have an ability to always learn and improve uh, from feedback in these situations. We don't have the ability to share lessons broader within the organisation. So had that Lion Air um, incident being shared earlier, surely that, 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 um, that information would be pushed across the entire organisation and potentially across all of Boeing. The ability to fix errors when they occur, uh, the ability to have safer and more, uh, the ability to have a safer and more reliable business. And that's probably the end point. Um, if we get good data from our people regularly, they're the ones who are engaging uh, with the highest risk most often. We get the opportunity to proactively fix things, address them, uh, not only create a safer business, but a business that has greater organisational reliability, which as many of you will be aware, has many advantages from a commercial standpoint, as well as a culture and safety standpoint. So what we're going to do now is we're going to unpack the data. Why is it that people would, would not report? It would seem like quite an obvious and important thing to do, yet we're finding some quite significant data that suggests that people aren't reporting. A little bit of data about our sample group here. So as I mentioned earlier, the sample group that we've drawn from is uh, about 12,500 people from across nine different industries. So the industries we've, uh, we've taken uh, information from have included mining, manufacturing, oil and gas, education, utilities, government construction, agriculture and industrial services. And what that data has told us is that from a global perspective, we have about a 25% under-reporting rate. So what that means about 25% of incidents go under-reported. So the way we sort of went out to measure this data is we asked um, participants to say, how many incidents have you experienced over the last 12 month period? And how many did you report? And we've calculated the difference between those across the organisations that we've worked with. So globally about 25%. If we look at the Australian data though, it's a little bit more troubling again. In Australia, we tend to find the under-reporting rate, it goes up a little bit to about 31%. So under-reporting in Australia has been indicated to be uh, more significant than in other global organisations that we've worked with. So what does that actually look like practically when it comes to under-reporting? What, what it actually means that 50%, um, well, what we found is that 50% of the people that we spoke to experienced some type of incident. Of those, about 30% failed to report at least one incident. And on average, the people who failed to report actually reported an average of 6.3 incidents that were underreported. So what that tells is that within certain cultures, there was a culture of repeatedly not raising your hand or flagging incidents or areas or issues um, that, don't, that, that come up on a day-to-day -day basis. So to look at this from an organisational perspective and just see how much data and how much opportunity to learn and grow and improve 
and proactively take measures we are missing. Imagine you've got an organization of 3,000 employees. 50% of them experience one incident over a 12 month period. Of these, 450, so 30% of employees, failed to report an average of 6.3 incidents each. So that means we're not getting, uh, we're, we're getting underreporting of a whopping 2,835 on average for an organization of 3,000 people. So nearly, nearly a, uh, an incident per person is going underreported. So when we went to explore this data, we had a look at, well, if underreporting is occurring, where is it occurring? In what parts of the business, at what level of the organization? And unsurprisingly, teams, so the frontline workers, came up as the most likely to underreport. However, we then dove in and we had a look at management and frontline leaders. Surely they're not underreporting. Um, but we, did, we measured it anyway. So we said, well, um, you know, which are more likely to underreport, uh, management or frontline leaders? I'm going to ask you the question now what you, who you think is most likely to underreport? most frequently. So which leadership group do you think underreports the most frequently? Is it the frontline leaders or management? I've got a question just while we're um, reviewing that. Do OHS software products lead to underreporting? Hesitance to use, difficult to access, logins and other traumas. Well, Ray, um, I'm going to ask you to hang on the line and we'll address that question in probably about five minutes. So we're just getting the final answers coming through. I think I can probably close it off now if you like. Perfect, and that'd be great, Sarah. Look at those results. Okay, so we've got the results coming through. And we've got oh, a pretty even spread between frontline leaders and management. So um, actually this is a different result to a, man, a, a number of the other polls that we've run around here. Typically people expect that frontline leaders would be more significant, uh, more likely to underreport than managers. Um, I mean, if, you've, if anyone is interested, please type in the chat box why you think um, management over frontline leaders. I'd be, I'd be curious to understand that. Um, but what the data actually told us is that frontline leaders are likely to underreport at a rate of about 32%, frontline leaders at 15%, and management at 21%. So our data actually found, uh, a little bit like the poll data, um, that managers were more likely to underreport than frontline leaders. And we've got a couple of thoughts coming through, and uh, it says KPIs equal dollars managers because of incentives, um, managers because of more likely to impact on their KPIs. Very interesting feedback indeed. So a very intuitive group here, which is great. So let's dive in and we'll have a look at the specific drivers of underreporting. Uh, the first one that we found to be the most significant driver of underreporting was underappreciation of the benefits of reporting. So I took care of the problem myself. So the two common reasons, as I said, uh, were one, I took care of the problem myself or I didn't think it was that important. But both point to an underestimation of the value and importance of reporting any incident, no matter how big or how small. So as we discussed before, um, 
often in these types of instances, the workforce, including managers, aren't educated in the benefits uh, and the lost opportunities of reporting, um, such as you know being able to highlight, take proactive actions, and 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 role model effective um, uh, effective risk management. So we'll talk a little bit more about some. Uh, strategies that we can use to increase the appreciation of reporting uh, a little bit later on. The second driver we found to be quite the most significant, just under uh, that of underappreciation was fear. So putting stuff into the reporting system can be like putting your head in the noose. So these are direct quotes that we heard from the workforce. So these results indicate that 37% of people underreport due to a fear of repercussions. Um, cultures of fear and blame that exist within organisations uh, typically drive this uh, uh, lack of willingness to report incidents. So what are people particularly fearful of? It can be a number of different things. One, it's overly harsh or punitive disciplinary action or at worst losing a job. So, and these, these um, attitudes or frames around reporting can hang on for years after things occur. I was working with a with a site with an organisation with multiple sites only a couple of years ago, and a site in one part of the organisation uh, terminated the employment of two employees for breaching their their equivalent of sort of a golden rule. Um, that the the ramification of that went right through the organisation, and the story of the uh, mistreatment of these employees about how unfair it was and how safety. Is a, is a tool or a stick used to bash people over the head with and carried through the remaining thousands of people within the organisation. And this was four years later. So not having a clear um, way of dealing uh, with disciplinary and not communicating that effectively can be a real challenge. Social ramifications can also be a huge one. So they may be fearful of blaming, uh, being blamed by others for the discomfort of having a permanent blemish on the record or as we indicated earlier, if, uh, if a bonus is tied to reporting, uh, that also drives the fear. So imagine being the person, you know, everyone gets a Waco fridge freezer at the end of 100 days, incident free, and imagine being the person who experiences the incident on the 99th day and getting in the way of everyone's safety bonus. I wouldn't want to be in that person's shoes. So those are the types of things that can drive, that can drive it. And it drives a, a behaviour of burying incidents. So if I can hide it, I will. So in these things, people actively look to cover up incidents or disassociate themselves with, with an incident. So we're, we're probably all familiar with what that can look like. So again, we'll look at some strategies for how to address fear in just a moment. And the third driver, just to address Ray's question from earlier on, was that of process. So what this basically spoke to is that 25% of people said that they underreported due to the complex reporting process. So the process is complex or unclear or cumbersome, potentially time consuming, then, uh, then that can be a huge barrier. Another big barrier with process was also the ability for, for people to get feedback. So if people did report something and they never heard anything back as a result of that, uh, there, if there was no tangible feedback on what they reported, then what that also did was it demotivated people over time. It meant that they were less likely to report because they said, well, I've reported it, nothing was done about it, so they don't actually care. Um, so that, that energy went out of the conversation. 
Um, so I've got a question here from Lee. Have you ever found that the degree of reporting of minor incidents reflects the reporting of more significant um, tip of the iceberg uh, effect incidents? Look, I think um, where you've got a culture where reporting is a challenge, um, that, that permeates throughout an organisation. And sometimes you actually find that certain pockets of the organisation will have more significant under-reporting behaviours than others, and that might be linked to, say, leadership. Um, so there, there definitely can be um, uh, linkages between people's willingness to report at all and whether they're more likely to, to cover up big and, big and small incidents. Um, look, how does process play out? Um, I was working with an airline a couple of years ago and they were having an under-reporting issue. They found that they wanted their baggage handlers to be able to report incidents that occurred out there in the field. And they were sort of perplexed as to why these baggage handlers were, had such a low reporting rate despite being told in the morning meetings and constantly being challenged to actually uh, report these incidents. But when we actually went out and we had conversations with the workforce, we found that it was pretty clear why they couldn't. Number one was um, access to the right tools to report. In order for them to report, they had to leave uh, their day-to-day their -day job, they had to walk into the office, they had to walk past management to the back of the building, and they had to log into a computer. Most of them couldn't remember their logins, and they had to enter the incident into a computer system. So many practical barriers there to reporting the process um, uh, whatsoever. But then what also compounded the, the challenge was the fact that they had really strong KPIs on, on the time to get baggages off and you know, meet, meet their own deadlines. So they, were, they didn't really have time during the day to report. So if they wanted to report, they had to stay behind after their shift finished and report it in their own time, which was another barrier. And then the other barrier which they reported was having to walk past management to report that incident. Uh, if they found that they walked out of the field and into the office at, at any time outside of their breaks, they were challenged and, and quizzed by leaders as to why they, why they weren't out there doing their jobs. So you can see how the compounding effect of these can really drive a culture of, of under-reporting. So we've got another quick poll um, for you to reflect on for yourselves. What do you think is the number one reason for underreporting your business? So we're going to run a micro poll for the people online here. What do you think is the number one reason for underreporting your business? Do you think it's underappreciation of the benefits of reporting? Do you think it's a fear of negative repercussions? Or do you think it's issues with the reporting process? Too hard or no feedback? So I'll give people some time uh, to respond to that. Just as people are responding, a common question we get is around people's reporting products. So and it's, are you better off using a paper-based system or an online system to report incidents is that common question that we get. My answer to that question is they can be both equally as effective or ineffective as one another, depending on how they're implemented and how they're rolled out. And in fact, if you are using a paper-based system and you want to move to an online system, that can be amazing for a bunch of different reasons, collating data, real-time data. There's some awesome systems out there that can get you the data. However, if you're not gonna think about the steps that are required to effectively implement that and, and get people engaged with the system and then how you're gonna communicate the findings of that data back to the workforce, 
I'd encourage you not to bother because uh, poor implementation of a system will only drive further cynicism and scepticism around reporting. So that real deliberate thinking needs to be put into place. So Sarah, I think we might shut those polls down now and we'll see what people have had to say. <clears throat> okay, so interesting. So again, an even spread. So under appreciation, 38%. Uh, um, oh, it looks like people voted uh, on a couple of things, followed by fear of negative repercussions. And then the most significant one was the issues with the reporting process, so too hard slash no feedback. So slightly different to the results um, that we got, but it's interesting to see that people voted on more than one of those because it actually draws an important point. And that important point is that um, it's often more than one of these things that compound to create an underreporting culture. Um, so I would, I would agree with your, your responses there. So we've got a question here. How do you handle quality over quantity uh, when we encourage reporting high quality, significant information? When we encourage reporting poor quality, uh, significant information, insignificant information is reported. Um, there is an education piece to this. Um, so what we'll do is we'll jump in. I'll jump into um, what we can do about it now and I might be able to cover off on that. Uh, question a little bit through that process. So where do we start in addressing a culture of underreporting? The first place we start is by understanding that the culture of an organisation has a significant impact on whether people have a tendency to report or not. So this is the Sendus maturity model. And what it says is that cultures can, can exist predominantly in one of these maturity levels. Now, within an organisational culture, you have a predominant culture, but then you'll have pockets of strengths and, and pockets of opportunity. But what it says is that people will view safety and reporting as an extension of safety in one of these ways. They'll, be, they'll, have, they'll take a counterproductive mindset. The organisation doesn't care about me and my safety, so why should I care about what the organisation is trying to achieve? So that's that resistant culture to safety. At public compliance, we're starting to see leaders drive or enforce a compliance culture around reporting and safety, but that drives a two-speed culture. So you'll see different behaviours from the workforce when a leader is present versus not present. So in the counterproductive and um, public compliance spaces, you look in a culture that's predominantly driven by blame and avoidance and a lack of accountability. As you move in the private compliance, you're starting to see individuals take greater personal accountability and responsibility for safety. At mateship, people are understanding that, that safety and looking out for your mates um, and, and reporting, as an, as an example, is critical to getting everyone home safe. So mateship shouldn't be confused with the typical mateship in Australian culture of going down the pub and everyone having a schooner together. This is uh, more about caring and active care for one another. And at citizenship, you're seeing that um, everyone understands that safety is a core part of everyone's job and that we're, we're focusing on improving and learning um, as, a, as a collective. It should be noted that the sample group that we've drawn from, and this is probably um, makes sense because these are the organisations that have come to us looking for help. The sample group predominantly sits within the 86% of, of uh, 86% uh, 
sitting in the public compliance and below space. So um, we have had, again, that other 14% that's set at private compliance and above, but the majority of this sample group is at that lower end of the maturity curve. If we then extract out the higher performing organisations, what we actually found is that the underreporting rate got worse again. Uh, it, was more, it, was more, it was closer to 40% across those lower performing organisations, with the highest being 66%. So yeah, the worst result we saw there was that 66% of incidents went underreported. So culture plays a big role. <clears throat> So how do we create a culture of reporting? How do we start making a change? Well, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on three key um, areas of opportunity that you can focus on. Number one is upselling the value. Number two is creating psychological safety. And three is focusing on what we call good catches. So we'll kick off by taking a look at communicating the value of reporting. So this of course addresses the number one driver of underreporting, which is I didn't think it was important or I, or I just fixed it, fixed it myself. So helping people understand the, the value. So people need to understand the why error and in incident reporting benefits us all. Uh, and we need to build frames around a learning culture. So education becomes a huge factor here. Education about, well, this is what we do with the data. This is how we treat the data this is why this data is, is important. To address the earlier question about quality over quantity, if you're gonna be educating people about the importance of reporting, it's also an opportunity to, to educate them on what needs to be reporting. Um, and it, it might be an opportunity for you to think about as a leadership team, is there a way of prioritizing or, or helping educate people as to the level of priority they feel a particular report needs to have. Um, but again, that education piece becomes really critical. People crave direction and certainty, especially when, uh, so what we, want to what we want them to understand is um, what's expected of them in addressing incidents. So again, educating them why, and then taking them through clear steps as to, this is how you need to respond in, in regards to an incident that occurs, and this is how the organisation will respond to you. What also needs to be made very clear is um, what is, is understanding the consequences of a, of a blatant violation. So what would happen if I go and do something I shouldn't and, and I put myself or other people at risk? How do I treat that as an organisation? And, and what's, the best, um, what's the best way to do that to not further stifle underreporting? I'll cover off a little bit more on that in just a moment. And then finally, early, often ugly, it's okay. So where practical, people need to see the value of raising concern or, or, or I need a mistake. So what we talk about here is really celebrating when people raise an issue, but then also potentially playing out and helping the people within the organisation understand that by reporting this earlier, this is what we could have prevented. Uh, this is what we could have prevented from a hazard or a risk perspective. Uh, this is what could have been prevented um, from, a, from a cost to the organisation perspective. So to go back to the people crave certainty and uh, direction and certainty. Actually, before we jump into that, I might do this. Oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll just address that now. So people crave direction and certainty. So what I would challenge 
us to think about when it comes to that is what are we framing as a blatant violation? Um, are, and are we certain that it was purely the person going out to deliberately violate a particular set of circumstances um, that, uh, or a particular situation or, or policy that led to this outcome? What we often find is that it will be a number of factors which will contribute to someone making, uh, engaging in a blatant violation. We typically don't find that people go out there to put themselves or other people at risk. So there will have to be some consequences, obviously, um, for blatant violations. But what we encourage people to explore before they get to that point is could, could other people have done the same thing in the same situation? Was there leadership direction or guidance or lack of leadership direction or guidance which could have impacted on this situation? Uh, was the policy procedure rules and guidelines fit for purpose? Um, were the environmental circumstances supporting them, uh, you know, le leading them or driving them towards that particular outcome? Was there a known, was, it a, was that particular violation a known violation that, that had been handed down from other people in the organisations and this person just happened to be the one who, who got, the, um, got the messy end of the stick on that particular day? So if you're finding that your, your incident investigations lead back to the person being at fault more often than not, we'd challenge you around exploring more broadly how you're looking at challenges. Um, so we'll cover off on that a little bit more in just a, just a second. I'm curious from people on the line, how well does your business learn from errors? So we talk about um, closing the feedback loop, creating a learning organisation, encouraging um, people to report because they can see the broader benefits. I'm curious to see from people who are online, how well does your business learn from errors? Not at all, a little, somewhat, very uh, well or very well. So I'll give you a couple of moments. So I've got a, um, a question here just while people are answering. I'm the WHS reporting data analyst for an organisation with 4,500. How much does adult literacy, computer literacy pay apart? The more complex your systems and processes are, um, the more it will play a part is, is my quick answer to that. And we've certainly worked with organisations where they'll have a protocol or a safe operating procedure that will be 12 pages long. Uh, to use a piece of equipment and then an operator will be expected to sign on to that. That's an example from our perspective of safety probably serving the organisation and the safety team as opposed to the employee. So what we really promote here is simplifying these things to make them as easy to engage with as possible. So the response that we've got here is not at all. Um, not at all. So we've got 3% of people said that their organisation doesn't learn at all. 21% said a little. 59% said somewhat and then well and then very well. So it looks like most people are sort of sitting in that middle category or thereabouts in terms of their ability to learn uh, from errors. So a big opportunity for you to think about in terms of how we're circling back on the data that we're collecting from people uh, 
to ensure one, that we're learning and two, that we're communi communicating those learnings across the organisations we work with. All right, we're going to jump into the next addressing the idea of fear here. Um, so this is a quote from a book called The Fearless Organisation by Amy Edmondson. Many of you may have heard of it. It's a great book on psychological safety. And what it says is if leaders want to unleash individual and collective talent, they must, they must foster a psychologically safe climate where employees feel free to contribute ideas, share information and report mistakes. I'm sure we've all worked with an organisation where sometimes it was too scary or just too hard to open our mouths and speak up. So what we're talking about here is addressing a culture that actually encourages positive contributions um, and, and, and creates a space where people can feel free or can feel safe to admit to their mistakes and, and learn from them collectively. So the three things to consider here is adopting a different mindset potentially for some of us around the way we explore what what the experience of our employees is so adopting a learning mindset so this means blending humility and curiosity to seek to understand the challenges our people are experiencing from their perspective so i was always taught you've got one uh, one mouth and two ears and we should use them proportionately so in this space questions become one of your strongest skills as a leader and our encouragement would be whether it be in an incident investigation process or just in your general walk arounds or infield interactions what questions can you ask to understand the employee's experience around whatever it is you're trying to address whether it be under reporting as an example so i often uh, encourage leaders to go in and pretend they know nothing ask the person about what's working in their job, what's not working in their job, how things can be made easier, what it's like if an incident occurs, um, how easy things are to use and just listen and try not to argue. The second one we encourage is to give permission to play. So if you wanna build psychological safety, you need to create a space where people can actively promote and share their ideas. So major decisions are, that will impact on the people who are doing the job. Um, this is a critical piece of, of that process. So examples you might consider thinking about this with is say procurement of equipment. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many times I've met with teams where they've, been, uh, they've had a piece of kit procured for them, which is just completely not fit for purpose for the job that they're doing. And then they need to go back and retrofit and adjust and, and try and do workarounds to address um, the issues that are associated with that particular piece of a quit kit. Where engaging the workforce in the first place would have meant that there would have been less resistance to whatever was rolled out. Um, it would have been, a, uh, there would have been greater trust and commitment to the decisions play it out and the chances are it would have been cheaper in the long run because you wouldn't have had to go back and retrofit the equipment. Another one might be say planning a new piece of job. So if you're going into a new part, a new unfamiliar job or staying up a new part of the part of the job, tapping into the collective intelligence of the group, again, helps people understand that they're part of the solution, gets that greater organizational buy-in and will give you really good data and, and often give you a more robust risk assessment. Lastly, we're looking at frames. So what we talk about this is how do we build helpful frames in regards to trust for each other 
uh, how we raise concerns or how we own up to mistakes. And a lot of this comes down to role modeling the behaviors we display as leaders. If another shift or another department makes a mistake or doesn't meet an expectation that we have, what language are we using? Are we using helpful language or hindering language? Is it, are we creating an us and them culture or, or something else? I'd also challenge you to think about when something goes wrong within your organization, what is the immediate frame that pops up for you and your leadership group? So just to, to explore this a little bit further, consider this, what percentage of things that can and do go wrong in your workplace do you think are due to deliberate violations versus errors? So what percentage of things that can and do go wrong in your workplace do you think are due to deliberate violations or errors? So we'll put that poll up again. Um, we'll put that poll up and I'll ask you to vote. Do you think it's less than 20% of deliberate violations between 20 and 40, 40 and 60, 60 and 80, and then more than 80? So if anyone is interested in exploring more on the idea of psychological safety and trust, there's a bunch of, uh, there's a webinar that I ran recently available on our website, as well as some interesting articles that summarize the considerations for trust and psychological safety. So thank you, we're closing out that poll. And we found that less than 20% of things that go wrong in your workplace are due to deliberate violations, that's, that's the belief. So we've got 77% of people who voted that and then 13%, 20 to 40, um, 4%, 7%, and then, then 80%. Look, that's, that's a really interesting result. And that's, that's often the immediate response that we'll get from organisations. They, they'll say that, yes, we believe that on the, on the main part, people don't go out to deliberately violate. However, when you think about the amount of attention and energy that is focused upon consequences and, and holding people accountable um, for, for what, what's happened, I do wonder whether that is in fact the default frame or attitude that comes up for people. And that matters. Um, the, the attitude that we take into understanding why, why something has gone wrong within the workplace matters because it, it will, it will um, impact on the way that we seek out data, the frames that we take into that incident and the way that we communicate with the workforce. And all of that can further erode psychological safety. So it's great to see that the, that the people online here uh, are deliberately thinking about take, giving people the benefit of the doubt going into these processes. I would challenge you to think about, is that the prevailing attitude within your organisation? And is that what you focus on in terms of communicating and exploring uh, the situation? Again, as I've mentioned, I've seen many incidents take place in organisations where if I'm really honest, if I'd put myself in the shoes of the person who was involved in the incidents, I might've done the same thing. Um, so uh, how do we work 
the factors around the person as well as helping that person adopt the right or the, the most helpful attitude to risk. The next component here is looking at the culture of good catchers. So this again refers to the ease of reporting and motivating people to, to use the system. So firstly, we need to address what is being reported. So whether it's uh, uh, an incident or a near miss or a safety concern, how do we recognise that and then commit to action? So the more we focus on, on those and addressing them, the more, the more psychological safety we, would, um, we, we will create. Something to think about is do you put the same amount of energy into recognising good proactive reporting and, um, and, and engaging with the system as you do into addressing something once it's gone wrong? And what are the consequences of that? Be consistent. So be true to your expectations and consequences. Um, the perception of fairness is a huge part of creating trust and collaboration. So when you do choose a set of disciplinary actions um, to roll out across your organisation, they must be very, very clearly stated, very clearly communicated. And if you choose to implement them within the organisation, the reason why needs to be provided. Um, if you don't provide the reason why, if you don't provide the detail that helps people understand why discipline uh, has been put into place, people will make up their own why. And it often isn't the why that you want to hear. So we need to be consistent, we need to be clear. And finally, we need to close the feedback loop. So we need to share the learning results. Um, we need to provide positive feedback to the team um, and we need to, and, and to the individual in, involved. And we need to promote um, the benefits of, of that reporting to every worker on site. So we talk, we talk about here really being really proactive in reporting uh, the good catches. Something for you to consider as you're engaging with your workforce or your leaders work with your workforce, do you focus more on addressing uh, behaviours or issues that need to be corrected or do you focus more on recognising the good things that are happening out there every single day? What the research tells us is that for every negative bit of um, feedback that we provide someone to balance out that relationship, we need, to be able, we need to be able to provide at least five positive bits in return if we want to create and maintain a stable relationship. So part of this process provides us with an opportunity to go out there and hunt the good stuff and not only focus on what's not working, but focus on what is working and how we can uh, learn from that as well. So some tips there you can take away. So where to from here? What, what should organisations consider? Firstly, we'd challenge you to identify the drivers of your safety culture with a comprehensive diagnostic. So we use a qualitative and quantitative approach to understanding what's happening within the organisations that we work with. Um, if you feel that you don't have the psychological safety and trust within your organisation to go in and find this information, we'd suggest using a third party to do so. Um, secondly, we need to understand the safety leadership capability and opportunities to improve a reporting, improve a reporting culture. So as I spoke about before, leaders play a critical role in creating psychological safety and trust and reinforcing the types of behaviours we want to see in relation to reporting. So ensuring that leaders have the skills to not only explain why reporting is important uh, and understand for themselves why reporting is important, 
but also giving them the skills to communicate effectively and encourage that reporting becomes really critical. Um, look at the safety attitudes within your workforce. Uh, if you've got high under-reporting, there's, there's a fair chance that you've got a high level of cynicism around safety and that people probably think that, um, that safety to a large extent is a backside covering exercise by management. So there may be a prevailing unhelpful set of attitudes within the workforce, which may need to be addressed to help you uh, drive that. So again, focusing on the why, the what's in it for me becomes really important for the workforce. And then finally, looking at adopting a strategic approach to sustain change becomes, uh, becomes absolutely critical. Um, so what we're talking about here is, you're probably not gonna go from zero to 100 when it comes to reporting. Thinking about the, the incremental steps that need to be implemented um, and, and pacing those out and reporting back to the organisation um, what's worked and what hasn't worked, celebrating uh, those successes becomes important. And viewing this as a longer term project also becomes critical. Uh, often organisations can focus on driving up, under-reporting, they'll hit an objective and they'll move on to the next thing that's on fire. So having a good steer comm in place that helps you drive your more cultural initiatives becomes absolutely critical in driving the outcomes that you want to see. So we'll open up for questions in just a moment. We've got about 10 minutes to do that. Um, for those of you who would like to know more about this topic and the research that I've uh, discussed, I've really gone at a surface level uh, over this stuff, all I could do in 45 minutes. If you go to our website, you can download the full report with recommendations. So you can just go to senus.com forward slash insights and get that full report. We'll also send it through to you in a link post this session. Another offer for this group is also the opportunity to engage in our intensive leadership program. So if you want to be a change agent within your organization, it challenges your business to think differently about safety, to, to, to look at how fostering a culture of trust and psychological safety to improve reporting your overall psychological, uh, your overall safety performance, then this is a great program to, to look at. So we define the culture, we look at practical skills to build psychological safety, we help you map out a plan uh, to take back into your organisation. The cohorts that we've had through so far have found this particularly useful, uh, not only for the um, conversation and the IP and the resources that are provided, but because you, we've got individuals from a number of different organisations, it becomes a great collaborative environment for, for people from different businesses to share what's working and not working from them. So as much as we're providing learning, we're finding that participants are, are learning from one another and creating those, those really strong networks. So we'll move into the Q&A part. Um, actually, what, before we do that, um, I'll ask um, Sarah to drop out the poll. If you'd like to be interested, if you'd like to be contacted uh, about joining that intensive leadership program, just click yes on the poll. Um, we'll also be sending out an expression of interest in the emails. So if you would like to, um, you can also respond to the email. So Sarah, as we're waiting for that poll to be answered, have we had any questions come through? Uh, yes. Um, the first question is, do OHS software products lead to underreporting? Has this hesitance to use difficulty to access logins and other traumas? Yeah, so as I mentioned sort of throughout the webinar, uh, absolutely. So um, poorly implemented systems of any nature, be they OHS or other, um, will 
drive increased cynicism and reluctance to engage um, with that particular process. A well-implemented, um, well-thought-through, user-friendly OHS system can be a brilliant thing um, for a business to roll out. It can provide great data, it can you know, provide great insights, and it can actually enable businesses to provide close the feedback loop more efficiently. However, if we're not willing to put the thought into the implementation and also the consultation of the workforce before the implementation to ensure that what we're doing is fit for purpose, we'd probably say steer away. So my quick response to that is, if you don't do it properly, um, you're probably at risk of doing more damage than good. Um, Nish asks, how do you handle quality over quantity when we encourage reporting? Poor quality in significant information is reported. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, part of this becomes into the education piece. So really encouraging, um, uh, getting people to identify what the more critical in, uh, issues are versus the less critical ones. And then you know, if you're getting a lot of insignificant stuff, maybe using them as examples, de-identified of course, to say, you know, this is, this is an example of great reporting that we're able to act on. This is perhaps something which, which wasn't as helpful and needs to be dealt with in a different way. So again, education in the first instance, but then as you're sort of finding the right balance within your organization, continuing to give that feedback and, and, re and to the workforce about what that reporting needs to look like becomes, becomes a big part of that process. Okay, Steve asks, where do you begin when there is no consequences? Where do you begin when there is no consequences? Um, uh, within your organization, I would assume. Um, I guess where you begin is understanding, I, I, my, my response to that is I would need to understand more. So uh, are, there no, are there no consequences because of leadership failing to respond and act in relation to issues? Are there no consequences because we're not really under, like there's no drive to understand what's happening within the organization. Uh, what I would encourage you to do in that instance would be, again, stay in discovery mode. Why are people not reporting? Why are people doing the things that they're doing? Why are there no consequences? What is the general leadership perception and attitude towards reporting? Do they under understand the value? Do they understand the performance? Uh, the the the, um, the consequence of not reporting. Um, so there's probably, again, on a surface level here, a bit of exploration that, uh, that would need to be um, done in order to understand um, that particular issue that you've got. So I'd say stay in discovery and, and get to know more information. Okay, Jovan asks, um, common reasons for underreporting was that people took care of the problem themselves. Should I be thinking that this may be a deliberate effort to cover up incidents in the workplace? Look, in some instances, yes. In, in some instances, no. Um, and again, I would encourage you to, to talk to the workforce and understand more. Um, yeah, I just fixed it myself. Could be, you know, that example that I gave before about the airline. It was easier for those guys to fix it themselves within the team uh, because they didn't have to walk through the office and plug it into the system. And they also didn't have to feel with, uh, deal with management. Um, and they all knew that the issue was resolved. So it might be a combination of things that are feeding, 
feeding into that. Again, the encouragement would be if underreporting is an issue within your organisation, go talk to your people, talk to the people who are doing a job every day, create some safe spaces for them to let you know what's working and not working. Okay, Celine asks, what have you found would help the reporting of mental health and wellbeing issues at work? Yes. Um, uh, a lot of the mental health um, challenge that, that we deal with comes down to leaders effectively knowing how to have a supportive conversation. And this is another webinar that we've run just recently. Often leaders will, will look at someone and they'll, they'll see that they're perhaps not doing as well as they poss possibly could be doing and don't know how to broach the conversation with their people. They don't know what the boundaries are. They don't know how to, how to, um, yeah, how to engage with that person. So giving some clear guidance to your leaders about how to ask the question, appropriate boundaries to, to have those conversations and giving them support to, to engage with their workforce and, and build that trust and psychological safety becomes really important. Again, if people don't feel psychological safety and trust with their leader, they're also likely to underreport um, psychological issues as well. So that leadership relationship becomes so important when it comes to mental health. Doug asks, what is your option on an offer a gift card for the best good catch submitted each month? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think incentivizing, um, incentivizing lead indicators as, as we would, like, as an example there provides a much better outcome. If it, if it drives, um, yeah, if it drives to get more of that reporting in. What I've often found is that, yeah, a gift card can be great. We'd encourage you for it not to be too significant. Um, you know, a small token of appreciation might be great, but actually taking the time to recognize the effort that person's gone to, uh, talking about the implications of them making that good catch, what it's meant for the organization, and, and probably focusing on more of the, the, like the reward, reward and recognition in terms of praise and uh, of their performance and, um, and what they've done has just as big an impact as the $50 gift voucher or, or whatever it might be. So I'd be probably, if you want to chuck a gift voucher, that's great, but I'd probably be thinking about how do you, you know, recognize the status and the engagement of person in a more regular um, and more sort of, yeah, way of promoting their personal brand uh, within the business. So Nish has said, reporting of physical and tangible incidents are normal. How do we change the mindset to report psychological incidents? Um, look, again, it comes down to, to education here. So do your people know how to report a psychological incident? Do you have the systems and processes set up to report a psychological incident? What will, we, what will be done with that information if I report a psychological incident? Um, what's the perception of stigma um, around psychological incidents within your workforce? Are your leaders equipped to deal with psychological incidents and issues that occur within, within the business? So we've spent so much time focusing on physical risk um, in safety. Uh, in most organisations that we've worked with, the, the same thought and process hasn't been put into the psychological risk area here. 
So we'd encourage you to be really thinking about if I was someone who was experiencing um, a psychological incident, what would my experience be like? And in fact, if you've had live cases of people experiencing this that you know about, there's an opportunity to go and talk to people and learn uh, and understand from them uh, the barriers to reporting. Okay. Um, Pavlin says, can you depict production output versus risk under reporting? Um, can you depict production risk? I'm sorry, I don't completely understand the question there. Okay, maybe we can get some clarification and we'll just move yep. to the next one. Celine asks, what incidents are too minor or insignificant to be reported or to not bother about? Oh, look, um, I'm probably not going to provide comment on that one just yet because that's going to look different for, for every organisation. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're getting people saying we're out of tomato sauce flavoured chips in the vending machine and you're getting those sorts of reports through, they're probably not particularly helpful. Um, but we'd be looking, we'd be challenging to look at your own risk profile and, and form your own views around uh, what data is useful to, to understand and not. Um, so probably a, a bigger conversation for another day. Okay, so I think um, just two last final questions. Um, Peter asks, we hear a lot about no blame incident reporting. In practical terms, this is a difficult concept for senior management to adopt. Do you have any comment on how to convince decision makers that moving down the no blame path is a good thing? Yes. Um, so, yeah, you go to a board meeting or an executive team um, and often often the first response will be after a significant incident occurred is who's going to get the sack. I've been in many of those meetings um, where that's, that's happened time and time again. So when you want to shift to a no blame type of mindset where we want to seek to understand what truly happened, the education generally needs to start at the board. Um, and you would expect that boards understand um, the, the ramifications of of you know, dealing with incidents primarily in a disciplinary fashion, but my experience is typically they don't. So the culture needs to start at a board level and the, question, and the questions need to be, um, you know, what were the factors that played into this incident uh, occurring as opposed to who needs to get the sack as the result of this. So an educational piece that helps them understand the implications of having low psychological safety on reporting and future organisational reliability um, is a is a big part of the conversation. But also then, you know, yeah, that education piece. If we do this, we're going to get better quality data, which means that we can address things more proactively, which means a more reliable organisation, which means, you know, ultimately we do better, we make more money, we've got a safer operation. Thank you. Pevelin um, has clarified, he said, is the emphasis on production a factor in under-reporting? Yes, it can be. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we can't have a balance between safety and production. Um, but if there's a single-minded focus on performance numbers um, and, um, and you know, getting, getting the tons out or, or keeping those flights on time or whatever it might be, 
yes, that can have a huge impact on, on under-reporting. But it's probably, yeah, but, but again, the focus on production is one thing, but it's the leadership behaviours around the focus on production and the way they communicate with their workforce and what they prioritise and what they don't prioritise, what they tell people to skip, what they tell people not to skip. Um, so again, it will come down to a leadership challenge of driving safe production over just production. Great. Okay, well, that's the end of the questions today. And um, I just want to reiterate, we will send all the links out in an email, but that will probably go out tomorrow, um, including the video. And I hope we can have you back, Anthony Giz, again in the future for another webinar, because that was great. Great, um, thank you. Is there anything else you need to say? No, look, thank you. Um, thank you all. Uh, it's a complex topic. We encourage you to download that resource or get in touch if you want to explore um, yeah, some of the tools to improve reporting within your organisation. Great. All right, then. Well, I hope everyone has a good rest of their day and um, we'll see some of you probably next week. Um, I've put a link in there to our future webinars too. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. bye. See you.